Join with me in a reading of God's word. John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Whenever you read in the Bible a passage that is often quoted out of context, it takes a lot of work, a lot of intentional work, to read it in context. Why is this? Because by familiarity, you've begun to understand that verse as a standalone. Today, in our reading, we've encountered one of those verses, and so it may be no surprise to you if you've ever heard a few teachings of mine that I want to look at the context. So the, the verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's often used in an evangelistic context, right? If you've ever seen what's called a gospel tract, or if someone shared the gospel and, and taking you down what's called the Romans road, or, or what have you, you may have heard this verse. How do you get to the Father? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That was one of the verses I had to memorize in, in uh, Christian elementary school. And I memorized it in the King James. And, and so if I, if I go back and forth between ye and you and thou, please forgive me, but... Um, no one comes to the Father but by me or except through me. And the point is this, that, that this verse 
is not simply talking about how you get saved. It's actually talking about how you are supposed to be living as a Christian. Yes, Jesus Christ is the only name by which men might be saved. Yes, Jesus Christ is the only door to the Father. However, what he's saying here ought to be seen in the whole context of what he's doing in these chapters in what what we're going to see is called the Upper Room Discourse. And so we're actually going to go back to John 13. We're going to read a few verses from John 13 and explain where this fits in the Gospels. And so why are we doing this today in, in the season of Easter, reading something that happened before the crucifixion? Shouldn't we be reading stories about what happened after? Well, it's the case that in John's Gospel, over and over again, he'll insert these phrases. Now, at this time, the disciples did not believe, but when he rose from the dead, they believed. There's one of those phrases in both John 13 and John 14. Jesus says, you're not able to follow me now, but you will follow me. And then again, in this same chapter in John 14, later on in next week's reading, it says that they didn't understand these things at this time, but when he was raised from the dead, then they believed. And so what we're doing in these readings, spending so much time in the Gospel of John in this season of Easter, is we're going back and we're looking at these events that happened to the disciples and we're re-examining them in the light of the resurrection. That is, Jesus does something through the resurrection that causes his disciples to reevaluate prior messages. This happens all the time in history, and if, it doesn't, if you're unfamiliar with it, just consider, for example, like just one historical fact. For example, before it was called World War I, it was the Great War, and then it was called World War I because a second world war came around. Think about it. They didn't end the first world war and say, okay, that was number one. <laughs> when is number two going to start? So, so future events, events that happen later, recast the meaning of what took place at the beginning, right? If someone becomes a great person later on in their life, they go back and write the autobiography after, or the biography after they become great. Hopefully none of you have your memoirs started already. <laughs> the, the point is that later events recast, they do not retell, they, they don't change what originally was there, they do reveal the kernel of what was there. And so what we're going to see here is Jesus' commands to his disciples to follow him on a way that they don't understand yet. And yet, through Jesus' actions, as we're going to see in John 13, he actually was showing them even in those very moments. So the first thing I want to look at before we get into today's text is actually of the context of John 13 and what Jesus did by washing his disciples' feet and how that informs what the word the way means. It's not just a way of life in a generic abstract sense that I should follow Christ or be a Christian, but what does Jesus' way really mean? That's the whole point of today's sermon. I want to look at the promise of the Father's house as being a great promise, again seen in the context of John 13. I want to look at Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, again in context of what we've been talking about. Hopefully you're going to see a larger scope of what that all means. It's not just a way that you get saved. It's a way that you live as a Christian. And then finally, I want to look at these greater works through Christ 
Just on the onset, I'm going to just show my cards at the beginning of the match, so to speak, or the beginning of the hand. Uh, it's amazing to me what Bible teachers will do in teaching this chapter. Every single thing that could apply to the spiritual sense of a Christian is applied to all Christians, and yet that promise is relegated to the apostles alone. And what's so strange is that that happens in the Gospels all the time. You know, you'll hear an ethical or a moral provision, and those will apply to all Christians, and yet when it, whenever Jesus talks about miracles, somehow the context has changed. Brothers and sisters, I believe the greater works are promised to those who believe. And what we're going to see is that there actually is, is a reason which God from time to time withholds those greater works when they're not done in this context of love. What I'm talking about today is that the way of Jesus Christ is an act of giving up your life for another person because of the knowledge of where you're going. It's not to become great. It's not to become the next traveling healing minister. We need those, but we also need a people, a people who are willing to lay their life down, who live like Christ lives. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples. So we're going to get into it in John 13. This whole context in John 13 all the way through the end of chapter 16 is known as the upper room discourse. And this is a time in which Jesus is about to be crucified. He knows that the hour of his crucifixion is coming. Some Greeks came to see him in John 12, and then Jesus doesn't entertain them. He doesn't meet with them, but says, he kind of turns to his disciples and say, says, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus interprets the coming of these foreign people, these Greeks, as the indicator that the Father is beginning to draw the nations to him and that he's going to be lifted up, that he might draw all peoples to him. And so Jesus then turns to focus with the disciples and he tells them a series of statements, a series of messages which are completely revealing his heart. Jesus is giving his disciples, really the core of who he is, the very heart of Christ's being, as he was sent by the Father, he communicates that mission to the disciples. And interestingly enough, before he begins teaching them, before he begins teaching them with words, with, with teachings of what they need to remember when he goes away, he first teaches them by a radical example, an example that is quite clearly mind-blowing, to, to, to the disciples, both in how they respond, and it transcends really even the physical act of what he was doing. So in this final message, before his death, he speaks in, the, in these chapters of his person, who he is as Christ, as the Messiah, his work, what he's going to be doing on the cross, and his ministry, both the ministry that he did publicly in Signs and Wonders, as well as his teaching ministry, all of it being revealing the heart of the Father. And at the very onset, he shows exactly his heart. John tells his readers that all of this is done because of Christ's love for his people. He says in verse 1 of chapter 13, he be John begins a new section in his gospel. He says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
So John is not just talking about what Jesus does on the cross as an act of his love, but really what he's about to do in washing their feet as well as teaching them and giving them a promise of reception with the Father and a promise of the sending of the Spirit. All of that is being interpreted by John as Jesus loving his disciples until the end. He did not abandon the disciples as they abandoned him. He wanted them to persevere. He gave them wonderfully sweet messages of comfort that should sustain them through what to them would be the greatest turmoil in their entire life. This would have been completely life-shattering. To have their friend, the one they called Messiah, the one that they believed was sent from heaven, to have him stolen away as a thief, tried illegally and murdered, would have completely ruined their life so to speak. And yet Jesus over and over again is saying, you don't understand what's happening, but I'm loving you through this. And so at the very beginning, before the Passover meal, Jesus clothes himself as a servant and washes their feet. And he does this in order to act out a living parable of his entire earthly ministry. In fact, when you understand what Jesus is doing for the disciples, he knows because God has told him that the disciples cannot follow him. He'll even say that in a few verses. He knows that the disciples will not make it to the cross, and so he enacts two parables in order to help them see, if, as you, you, know, you might say, that he helps them see even though they can't see. They're not going to be there, but he brings them there by his actions, first washing their feet and then finally instituting the meal. So John tells us why Jesus did this and he shows us his motivation. John is being anointed by the Spirit to write the gospel and the Spirit reveals what was in Jesus' heart and then John writes it for us so that we can understand. So John's words here in his gospel, in 13, three through five, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He arose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it to his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to, wipe, to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John shows us that Jesus has the mind of the Messiah. He has the mind of the one who is setting aside his life in order to bless his people. Jesus then teaches his disciples the meaning of what he's done. In verse 12, he says, uh, John tells us that when he, that is Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? And clearly, this is a rhetorical question, and the answer is not fully. The reason they do not is because Jesus was still in the process of doing the reality which he had just spoken of in the sign of the physical parable in washing their feet. This entire parable should be understood as a microcosm of the gospel, that Jesus had a place at the table, so to speak, with the Father, that he veiled himself, setting aside his outer garments, that he took the form of a servant and humbled himself, even unto death, the death of the cross. He took the form of a servant and considered his disciples as greater than he. 
right? We just sang a song a few minutes ago during our worship time that talks about the fact that Jesus traded blood for his people. Paul uses this phrase in Acts chapter 20. He says to the elders who he's leaving in the city of Ephesus, he says, watch over the flock, those whom the Messiah or Jesus traded his blood for or exchanged his blood for. How do you exchange something in a, in a commerce transaction? You value the thing you're buying more than the thing you're giving. You want that thing more than you want the money. And so what Jesus is doing in this parable is he's showing his heart in going to the cross. He considers the disciples being redeemed and being brought to God as something greater than not dying himself. He purchases the flock with his blood. And so Jesus portrays his love. He does this by taking the form of the servant. And in in fact, right before uh, Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, he, he says that he's going to Jerusalem and the spirit hasn't yet revealed what's going to happen to him. But he says, I consider my life as of no regard. He's do, what Paul's doing is he's doing exactly what Jesus did. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die. And so Paul is kind of saying, you know, I'm not going to make the atonement, but I know that everywhere the spirit testifies that sufferings await me, but I do not consider my life as something that I get to keep. I have to go preach to the, to the Christians in the city of Jerusalem. I have to go tell them about the glorious gospel of Christ. So Jesus did all of these things because of his great love for his disciples, and he uses such fatherly and tender, affectionate speech in that he calls them children. He says, uh, in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? Just as I have loved you, past tense. He loved them through what he did in washing their feet. And the reason he did it in washing their feet, again, is he knows most of them will not make it to the crucifixion. One or two of them might see it. John, we know, made it to the cross. Peter looked on from a distance. But most of them, it's not clear that they ever even knew what took place until quite afterwards. The point is this, Jesus is presenting in a parable in a way that they can receive it, a symbol of his love, that Jesus would consider their cleanliness more important than his pride or, or to his, his respect, his honor, not to say that the Lord was prideful. But, it, but he places himself beneath them physically, literally, relationally, socially. Simon Peter at this point objects, saying Jesus, want, you know, he's going to die for Jesus, but Jesus tells him he's unable to. Verse 36 of John 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Now, this, I think, is meant in two ways, that, yes, Peter is going to be with the Father. That's where Jesus is going. Remember the the third verse of John 13, Jesus knowing that he had come from God and knowing that he was going back to God. But the road that Jesus was going to take to get back to the Father went through the cross. The cross was a great signpost or a great 
impediment along the way that Christ had to go through. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, Peter, you will go where I'm going. But we know from the rest of the Gospels, yes, Peter also will give his life for Jesus Christ. The way that Jesus took is not different than the way that Peter took. Jesus promises you will follow afterward. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You know, often we read Peter's statements and we think, wow, how foolish Peter is. I'm actually kind of impressed. Don't don't you see what he's saying here? Peter has a very noble resolve in his heart. It's it's ill-founded. It's poorly formed. It's wrongly motivated, but it is the right outcome. He's not saying, I'm going to run away from the problem. He does run away from the problem, but there's something authentic about Peter's desire to go and be with the Lord. And in fact, if there's nothing in you that, that would respond to Jesus' call to come and die, you aren't even a disciple at all. Jesus said, unless someone who hates his father, mother, brother, sisters more than me, he's unworthy of me. That's radically different than the way we present Jesus. Nevertheless, Simon Peter is not going to die for Jesus at this time. We know from the story, Peter is going to deny Jesus. He's going to deny him thrice. He's going to deny him completely. And so here we see Jesus describing this way that he's going and this destination that he's going to, knowing that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Jesus says, I'm going somewhere. Where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow. And so this understanding of where Jesus is going, the destination, and how Jesus is going to get there, the way, has to be understood in the context. All of his statements in John 14 about his departure, where he's going, and the way that they must take, all of them are grounded in the context of his sacrificial death unto his reunion with the Father. It's not just some abstract way of life. When he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it doesn't mean we're switching flavors of gum. Have you ever done this in the store? You want to buy your favorite brand of gum? I I love like two brands of gum. But if they don't have that brand, I switch because I want the gum more than I care about the brand. Some people present the gospel this way. They say, Jesus is the way. You know, don't live your life how you want. Become a Christian. And they present the gospel as this kind of surface-level switch from living life your own way to living it Jesus' way. They present a verse like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They say it's better to follow Jesus, and then they leave it there. Mm -hmm. They don't explain what the way means. What Jesus is talking about is the way that he's going to get to the Father is through death. That's a very crucial part of the way. The way in which Jesus goes to the Father is by giving up his life, is by loving his disciples more than he loves himself. And this, I think, is the heart of true Christianity. True, radical Christianity is nothing extremely deep or profound, but it does cut to the core of the matter. This sort of love cannot be produced by a sinful human heart. This sort of love for your neighbor, love for obeying God's will for one's life, that sort of love can only be produced by God himself. And so Jesus gives a promise, but this promise is not a general command not to worry. Again, reading verse 1, let your hearts not be troubled, 
you can do violence to the text by taking that and saying, okay, God doesn't want me to worry. But what you should see more fully is he's saying, I'm about to leave you guys. And then John 14, 1. It's helpful to remember the chapter breaks were introduced in the 13th century. And so they're not, when John was writing his gospel, he didn't say, right here, I want to, I want to, disconnect the ideas. No, Jesus is saying, don't worry, because the idea of Jesus leaving, this is the Messiah they're talking about, they would have seen this as an abdication of his Messiahship. They would have seen this as Jesus leaving everything that the Messiah was supposed to do unfulfilled. And so what he's saying to them is, if you believe in God, you ought to believe in me as well. You need to trust me at this moment You don't understand what's going to happen, but I'm going to come to you. I'm going to send the Spirit. My my Father and I will come and make our abode with you. All of these things that he's saying to them are given so that they would not despair. This isn't just a general call to not be anxious about your chores that you have to do the next day or your job situation or your relationships. It's a call to not forsake Christ when it looks like Christ has left you. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why would they be troubled? Because he's going to disappear. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he gives this amazing promise, and it's rooted to this not despairing. Why? It's because they're going to go where he was going, knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God. See, he's, he's saying this because he's giving a promise to them that they would feed on this promise and not be troubled and despairing when it looks like Jesus has completely abandoned them. In verse 2, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. We've seen this throughout all of this season of Easter that Jesus is a forerunner to his people. We saw this last week in the parable about the good shepherd, that the good shepherd in opening the door to the sheepfold that morning goes, he leads them out, and when all of them have been brought out, he then goes before them. He places himself in front of his people and intercepts the danger, the wolf, the bear, the lion that would come against the sheepfold. Jesus is the forerunner for his people, tasting of death beforehand, eating the sting of it, so to speak, and then allowing his disciples, his flock, his family to come up after him. He's a forerunner, and he goes before his disciples to open up the way to heaven. See, Jesus is not just making an atonement in a general sense. He's uniting everything in heaven and earth, so that he would be the mediator, the one through whom God blesses his people, the one through whom his people make their petitions to their father. Jesus becomes for his people the source, the avenue of all grace, all supplication, all benefit. And so Jesus describes his mission is, I'm going to go to the father. Why am I going to go? To escape? No. I'm going to go do something. I'm going to go begin to work in the heavens to prepare a place for you. This opening will be done at the cost of his own life, which is why they cannot follow him now but will afterward. Remember what we talked about last week with the the door of 
that Jesus Christ is the door. He's the one who absorbs that flaming sword placed at the garden. He is the one who allows the high priest to enter, right? When, when Aaron would come in to offer, there was a bull, who, a son of the herd, who had to be cut and burnt. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going to go forward. You can't follow me at this moment, but you will afterwards. And so he's saying, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and then I'll bring you to myself. So the question is, why does Jesus tell his disciples about the Father's house? Is this so that they will just kind of continue to live their lives in, and hope for something at the end of their life? That is, they, they hear this promise, Jesus promises, hey, there's this great place where I'm going, the Father's house, and it's something to look forward to when you, when you die. Yes, but no. He's, he's saying there is this great place, there is a habitation you, you aren't just going to die and go into the ground. I'm going to give you a promise. You're going to live with God in God's house. If you grew up in the 90s, you're probably hearing a song in your head. It is, that song is, is fun, but it's also somewhat ridiculous because the notion of the Father's house, it's not just a fun place to go. It's not just like a Dairy Queen mixed with a kid zone mixed with a theme park. It's eternal life and peace. It is everlasting love. It is, I was reading a book the other day, I'm, I'm going through the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's, it's so much better than when I was 10. Uh, but one of the things, as the, in this book I was reading, The Voyage of the Don Treader, as they're moving towards the end of the story, they begin to get to these places where they drink water. And the way that Lewis says the water affected them, it was like drinking light. Now, you know, you can get all weird with that, but the point is that they were, they were tasting of the, the clarity of the promises as they were ending their journey. These promises were given by Jesus to his disciples, not so that they would just ignore the rest of their story and have a really great exclamation point. This was the avenue by which they were to endure. Because as he was going back to God, so are they. Not only are they going to the same destination, which is a wonderful destination, a wonderful promise, a promise that could never even be understood until one tasted of it, but at the same time, they're not just going to the same destination, they have the same road that they're going to travel on. Tradition tells us that all of these disciples faced martyrs' deaths. Now, not all Christians who follow Jesus face martyrs' deaths, but they should be facing the mortification of sin. They should be facing the trials and temptations of life, the sufferings that, that come through life. They should be going through those in the way that Jesus went through. For Jesus, the promise of returning to the Father, that is going to heaven, was not a flight from earthly trials. So often Jesus is presented as this alternate reality by which you can escape the problems of your life and yes, there are horrific things that may never be resolved in this life that you may have tasted of or encountered, but the way in which you survive them is not by ignoring them. You go through them. My boss at work has this phrase that I love, run to the end of the spear, right? Run toward it. 
The, the idea is that you will taste of terrible things, and the way in which you understand not to despair in those moments is because you have one who went before you, and he went somewhere, and if he went somewhere, he's preparing a place for you, and he's going to come back and bring you to where he is. For Jesus, the promise of returning to the Father was the fuel by which he suffered the death of the cross. It was the way in which, according to John 13, 3, he was able to do that humiliating work of cleaning the disciples' feet. Knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God. This, this is the motivation of Jesus Christ as he not only endures the horrific things of the cross, but also endures the humiliation, the suffering, the, the placing himself at a low point for the sake of those who he loves. Jesus wants, therefore, this mindset that he had concerning his destiny, which shaped all of his life, to become their mindset and to shape their life. This is what Philippians 2 says. You, you must have this mind or this mindset in you. That was in Christ Jesus. Though Jesus will come again and will take you to himself, the disciples begin this journey by following Christ. He says in verse 4, Jesus continues after saying, I'm going to bring you where I'm going. Verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. How did they know? He had just shown them in the, in the washing of their feet. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. Isn't this wonderful? How can we know the way? Jesus says, you know the way. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Thomas is clearly thinking on a different level than Jesus. He's not understanding the fullest sense. Later on in the upper room discourse, at one point, the disciples then say, ah, clearly, now you're speaking not in a parable or figure of speech, but plainly, and now we believe. And yet, he never changed his mode of teaching throughout the whole experience. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hopefully, when you heard that, you got a bigger sense of what he meant. See, Jesus didn't just experience the cross as an add-on to his ministry. It was the thing which colored and invaded and uh, flavored everything that he did. All of his earthly ministry in ministering to sick people, to poor people, to those who were trapped in sin, to really proudful people who were blinded by their re religiosity. Everything that Jesus did was living out the way. His entire life, his entire public ministry was completed in this mode of love for others. You see, it's one thing to become great in the, the eyes of the church. You can be a great writer, you can be a great minister, but when a cross comes that takes your life away, all of those praises of men get flattened to nothing. Jesus did everything in this way. He did it in such a way as he is able to say, I am that way. That, that way is not just like a philosophy by which you live your life. This is me. This is who I am. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How did they know him and see him? They saw it in the parable. They saw it in the fact that he washed their feet. He showed them the Father. He showed them the way. Furthermore, not only did he show them, but he was about to show the heart of the Father through the reality of the cross. 
2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The cross is not just an invitation. The cross is the mode of God's reconciling the world to himself. Those who he has chosen to draw near to himself, he did it in the cross. That's why when Jesus is described earlier in the Sunday school hour, we heard Jesus' name. Why was Jesus named Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. Not make it possible that they can be saved. He will do it. What did he say at the end of the cross? It is finished. He didn't say it is possible. He didn't say the door is open. He says it's done. Jesus fully loved them to the end. He completed his love. His love was mature. Following Jesus' way, therefore, for us, means walking as children of the Father with true love as the genuine motive for good works. People oftentimes approach God in a form of what you call legalism. This idea is that by doing enough good things, you could earn the Father's approval. But the problem with that is that that's not how God operates. Our God does not just consider external actions. He also considers internal motivations. This is why Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you if you commit adultery in your heart, right? If you lust after a woman, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. What God is doing through Jesus' teaching, therefore, is he's, he's taking the law and he's, he's opening it up. He's beginning to say, God is not just a God who looks at the externals. God is a God who looks inside. And the problem with trying to approach God's Uh, Trying to approach God based on one's own works, one's own favor, is that it has the wrong motive entirely. You cannot simultaneously lay down your life for someone and hope to also be earning your life at the same time. You cannot really love someone and want their approval. Why? Because sometimes loving someone means necessarily confronting. And you can never confront someone if you're worried if they'll accept you or not. It's impossible to do. You'll always pull your punches, so to speak. And so not only on on the divine level, but also even on the social level, you cannot love someone with ulterior motives. It's not truly love. I think that's what Jesus is, is getting at in this passage. Just as Thomas didn't understand Jesus' words, also Philip doesn't understand. Jesus said, From now on, you've seen the Father. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What Jesus is saying to Philip is, if you saw anything authentic in me, anything real, if if you had any genuine knowledge of what I've been showing you this whole time, you would have seen the Father. The Father is not this other God that is different than Jesus, right? They are, they are two distinct persons in a trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But the Son is constantly doing the works of the Father. He's constantly revealing the heart of the Father. The Father is not this other God that we have to be accepted by. Jesus is revealing what the Father is like. When Jesus delivers someone from demons, what does that say? The Father wants to deliver people from demons. When Jesus is healing someone of cancer, what does that say? The Father wants to heal someone of cancer. Jesus is constantly, every step of his life, 
He's revealing the heart of the Father. Therefore, he says to Philip, if you saw me at all, you would have seen the Father. Therefore, how can you say, show me the Father? I've already done that. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? What a wonderful idea that the Father and the Son, not only did they share this fellowship and harmony before time, through, through, throughout all eternity, but even in his ministry, he's able to say that the Father dwells in him and that he is in the Father. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Man, that's amazing. Jesus rests his identity on the authenticity of the works that he did as an accurate revelation of who the Father was and who he was as the Messiah. So therefore, in both word and deed, whether you believe Jesus' words or his actions, Jesus revealed the heart of the Father to the people. This revelation was perfectly clear in his ministry in doing signs and wonders, but it was never more clear than he was going to the cross. This is who the Father is, reconciling the world to himself. And those who believe in Jesus are likewise commissioned to reveal the Father. Jesus said in John 20, which we saw, I believe, four weeks ago, that as the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. The idea is that you've got this same mission if you're a disciple of Jesus. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. By the words I say to you, Jesus is not speaking of the apostles alone. Why do we know that? Because Paul did the exact same works of Jesus Christ, and Paul was not there. Even though Paul later said that I was an apostle untimely born, he's not in the audience of, therefore, I say to you. A lot of times theologians take these verses. They say everything else applies. We need to follow Jesus' way. We need to love our Father. We need to be examples of the Father. But then these verses are in a different context. It cannot be the case. Acts 8, verse 6 it says that the people, when they saw all the signs that Philip was doing, Philip wasn't in this room. Philip's not one of the apostles. Galatians 3, 5. It, so maybe you say, oh, well, Paul and Philip, those are special cases. They were official ministers of Jesus Christ in the first century. Okay, I'll grant you that. Galatians 3, 5. Paul says to the Galatian Christians, does he who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. What is he saying? He's saying that, the, that God is supplying works or miracles, great works, among the Galatian Christians. And it's quite clear, based on the errors of the Galatian Christians, that they were not the apostles. They were nothing like the apostles. So what Jesus is saying when he says, whoever believes in me is quite clearly an indicator it's an indicator. Those who believe in Jesus do these works. The works of Christ in his ministry clearly included signs, wonders, miracles, healings, deliverances, teachings, and evangelism. Some often say that great works include things like presenting the gospel and having people converted. That is a great work, and yet that also is included because Jesus said, they will do the works that I do and greater works. It's not 
it's not kind of this flight off into spiritual things that they'll bring inner healing, that there'll be conversion. They'll do the works that I do. Therefore, Jesus' presence at the Father's side will enlarge those works. They'll be, in that sense, greater. That is, Jesus, as the mediator who ever lives to make intercession, will be standing at, sitting rather at the Father's side and will be presenting their case before him, interceding on their behalf as the mediator. That is why he says, they will be greater because I'm going to the Father. Those works, therefore must be done in the same quality of love as Jesus had done them. This is why I think from time to time the church goes through long seasons in which it does not appear that greater works are being done because primarily we have not understood what does it mean to become like Christ in order to be able to do those greater works. Jesus clearly has a pattern of prayer in which he goes to, to be with the Father in large stretches of time, not seeking the glory of men, but going off and being alone. Not only that, I think from this context, what it's saying is that Jesus didn't do these great things in order to curry favor with men. He constantly is running away from the approval of men. And if you would be one who would do great works, I would commend you to adopt this sort of heart. The sort of heart that I think God would honor by giving great works, which I do believe are for today, is the sort of heart that would be just as happy as if God did it through your neighbor, as if he did it through you. And, and really, I think that has to be the case because of what Jesus did in that parable, of that living parable of taking the place of a servant. Should we desire to do great things in God? Yes and amen. We should desire the greater gifts. Amen. Should we desire to love our neighbor as ourself in those great works? Absolutely. I think when you get those two combos together, you're going to see some serious stuff. Verse four, uh, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice he says, this I will do. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, Jesus is saying that you have to ask for these things in his name. It can't be for your name. To ask in Jesus' name, therefore, is not a formula. It's not something you tack on at the end of your prayers. This is, this is the, a great problem with, with being in such good Christian community that throughout your whole life you've heard in Jesus' name at the end of your prayers. It's, I'm not telling you not to do that. What I'm telling you is when you say that, begin to think about what you're saying. That if I was presented with this problem, if I switched places and Jesus was presented with this problem, how would he pray? How would he intercede for this person? To, uh, again, you, ye children of the 90s, you may have remembered the bracelets. What would Jesus do? Yes. It's kind of corny, but it's quite helpful. I think to ask in Jesus' name, and therefore he'll do it, is to ask not just in Jesus' place, but for Jesus' honor, that Jesus would be glorified, that if your name is never known, Jesus' name is magnified. I think that's what it means. So those who desire to do greater works must also desire to do them in purity. 
having the same heart of Jesus to reveal the Father in them and through them. So in conclusion, through all of Jesus' ministry and teachings, his death and resurrection, we see the heart of the Father. Everything that he did was to reveal the Father's heart. And in seeing that, that can only be done by the Spirit, we are transformed from sin and idols to faith in God. We are brought out of death and into life. We are transformed from the kingdom of darkness or the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love, his beloved son. This is the transformation that happens when we see the work of Christ, when Christ is really made present to a heart by the the spirit of God. And so by being changed by the God who offers forgiveness and healing, we likewise must lay down all boasting and pride of self-importance. If you are currently seeking Christ and you are attempting to become fruitful in ministry, And there is even a small hint or a small root of one day I'll be great or I'll be, you know, I'll I'll have fame among other people. That will continue to grow. It must be plucked up by the roots. If you want a living parable of the dangers of weeds left unchallenged, I would invite you to my house. Once they take hold, they spread everywhere. A weed that is left for multiple days to grow in a garden puts its roots into places that getting rid of the weed, it will disturb all the other good things that are planted. Those things must be plucked up, they must be rooted out, and they cannot be rooted out by your effort alone. This is a grace of the Holy Spirit to produce the sort of humility that is becoming of a Christian, to produce this sort of heart that was Christ's heart, that is a work of the divine. It is not a work that you can do. This heart-level pride can only be rooted out by the Holy Spirit. So to truly follow Christ, obviously the Christian faith is one that is based on reception of a promise. It is based on repentance from sin, but it's not to end there. It must go on to laying down one's life. To truly follow Christ, we must become like him and take the lowest place by offering up our lives to God and for our neighbor. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we love you. We are so in awe of your example that you would even give your disciples a small glimpse of your heart through washing their feet. And Lord, we are often like Peter who at first objected that you were too glorious to wash us. We thank you, Jesus, that you warned him that if you do not wash him, then he has no part in you. Lord, I do pray that you would, by your spirit, produce that washing, that you would wash us completely, that we would be delivered from sin, and that your spirit likewise would transform our hearts, that we would be able to become like Jesus, that in seeing his humility, you would so move on our hearts that we would be captivated by that beauty, that it would transform us, that in seeing Christ, we would become like him. Lord, we pray that you would produce in us the sort of humility that would desire your name and your fame to become great and that we would become merely servants who do your will. Lord, we thank you for your kind heart in revealing your Father. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would produce that same transformation in us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.